The deadline for WARC Awards for Effectiveness 2024 is fast approaching. You have until 6 February to enter your campaigns for our celebration of strategic brilliance and effective impact. With 12 categories and five new regions, this is our biggest award show yet. And the great news is that you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix announced during Can Lions Week. I'm Rika Facundo, WARC's APAC editor, and I'm here to encourage you to head straight to WARC.com and submit your entry by the final deadline of February 6. This is your chance to win a Global WARC Grand Prix and truly claim your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. The WARC Awards 2024, Strategic Brilliance, Effective Impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to the Warp Podcast. My name is David Tiltman and this week we're summarizing some of the biggest talking points in marketing effectiveness over the past year. And today we're looking at the year in creative effectiveness. We'll be talking about some of the trends in the work that worked over the last 12 months, including the move from what you might call purpose to post-purpose, the return of humor and a host of important new research studies. Um, and to help us with this retrospective, I'm joined by Amy Rogers, Head of Content for Walk Creative. Now, Amy, before we get into the details, I've asked you to come with three talking points. But before we get into those, what's been your view of the year in creative effectiveness? Hi, David. Yeah, I mean, although this is, as as you just said, a retrospective, I think this year has been quite future looking, um, looking at what impact AI might have on the industry um, and the creative industry, lots of predictions, but I'd say um, maybe a limited impact so far, um, aside from maybe a slight increase in the use of AI generated imagery. Um, we've certainly been playing around um, with that a bit at Walk. Um, we've also seen continued efforts to link creativity to the bottom line. Um, so we've seen some new and refreshed studies looking at creativity's commercial impact. Um, and finally, I'd say that uh, we've seen more focus on the importance of emotion in advertising this year. And that, that ranges from humour, which uh, we'll talk a bit more about in a bit, but also um, around an avoidance of dull advertising. So stuff that doesn't pull on any emotional strings. Yeah, it has been an interesting year, particularly from that sort of research uh, point of view. Um, I mean, we've we've obviously done a lot around that at Walk ourselves. We we partnered with our colleagues at Lions with the Creative Impact Content Stream uh, in Cannes, which, uh, if you happen to be in New York, we are bringing to New York on the twenty fourth of January. But um, I, I think there's been a, a really concerted effort to double down on on really understanding the contribution of creativity to uh, to, to sort of business performance, and and we'll get onto that with the research uh, section later on in the podcast. But but what are we going to start with? Well, the the first quarter for for Walk Creative is always dominated by the publication of our annual rankings. So I thought I'd start with some headlines from those. Um, so in the rankings, we're looking at the most awarded work from um, the previous year. So in this case, 2022, across creativity, media and effectiveness. Uh, and through that work, we then rank brands and advertisers, agencies um, and networks too. Um, and when we looked across the three rankings this year, we saw some trends emerge. 
and obviously I can't go into all of them today. Um, there is a report on the site if you want to have a look, but I'll just focus on one because it feeds into a narrative that we've seen um, emerging in the latter part of this year. Okay, so what's that? What are we looking at? So across the rankings, we saw a, a high proportion of activism and protest campaigns this year. Um, we found that a lot of the highly awarded work was where brands were providing a voice to social issues, things like gun violence, um, female empowerment, sustainability, um, and DNI. Um, so purpose-based campaigns, if you like. Um, and it was a really strong theme. Actually, uh, 28% of the effective 100 were brand purpose campaigns, uh, and about the same number again were non-profit campaigns yeah and so far so so normal i guess we've seen the the gradual uh dominance of the rankings over the years by um various flavors of full good campaign um now this was work that was awarded in 2022 so not, not quite the tail end of the p- pandemic but still sort of you know a bit of a pandemic bit of a covid feel around it um, as we get into the rankings 2024, as we look into what's been award, awarded in the sort of 2023 calendar year, do you expect to see that situation start to change? Well, we've definitely seen a change in the way purpose is being talked about this year. Um, I mean, we started the year talking about um, the idea of creating shared value by being a purposeful brand um, rather than creating kind of brand purpose campaigns. It was about being a purposeful brand. And and yeah, that's not a new conversation. Um, You know, purpose was incredibly prevalent in awarded advertising. It, It has been for years. I don't think that will suddenly change, but the conversation is definitely evolving. Um, I think when brand purpose was first, you know, a thing, there were many brands out there doing it. Um, there, there was believed to be a correlation between doing good and growth in the bottom line without having to really kind of bake that latter part of the equation into the campaign. Um, so, so brand purpose advertising, you know, when it was first a thing was, was, was different. So it captured attention in, by being different. Yeah. And I guess one of the problems here is that that marketplace became pretty crowded we we had a lot of brands coming up with a lot of purposes uh and and not not always with that sort of second part of the equation you know that i think it it has been called into question just how effective uh a lot of brand purpose work has been yeah exactly you know so many brands say they have a purpose so much that consumers no longer believe in those purposes they're really skeptical um and at the same time, I think the industry has got, you know, a bit pissed off with purpose too. Purpose for purpose sake is something that you hear a lot now. Um, you know, churning out ads that, that fit into that purpose mold, but but do little actual or, or kind of scalable good in the world. Um, so, so we've kind of moved to best practice in purpose now being about creating shared value. So benefiting the cause or the issue, but also benefiting a brand's bottom line. And and we saw some really great examples of this in the rankings this year from brands like Michelob Ultra and Cadbury's. Um, But I think we're now at a point where that marketplace, again, might be coming a bit too crowded. So we're getting more of an evolution in this purpose conversation. Let's just unpack that a little bit because there's quite a lot in there. I think you know this sort of distinction we made between being uh, between brand purpose and being a purposeful brand is it's essentially a sort of difference between using this as a tactical approach that that sort of starts and ends in the marketing department and it being really baked into a uh, not just a marketing strategy but a, a company's strategy 
Um, and it, it feels like in the latter, there's there's still plenty of plenty of room uh, room to run. But the the examples you mentioned, Michelob Ultra, in, uh, in particular, was really about tying purpose into some kind of broader business scenario. So in that case, that was around supply chain. You know, bring bringing a sort of um, for good approach or long term for good approach into supply chain. And Cabris is about sort of supporting a sort of network of small retailers uh, on which on which Cabri depends. So so very interesting, a very different approach to the sort of you know make a thirty second uh, tear jerking ad approach that we we'd seen a few years before. So this thing's already sort of evolving and moving over time. I, I guess what's changed over the course of this year is this this emergence of of a term I'm seeing used in a few places post purpose. And if you tie that with some of the changes that companies like Unilever are making to their approach to this space, it feels like we're we're starting to move in a different direction again. Yeah, yeah. Post purpose, it's not it's not a new term. It's kind of been around since since the purpose backlash began. But I think it's being used again now to label another potential transition of what purpose in advertising means or or for some perhaps even a shift away from purpose altogether. Um, you know, there seem to be a number of schools of thought around what post-purpose means. That The first one is, to your point, the likes of what Michelob Ultra and Cadbury's are doing. So further developing what it means to be a purposeful brand. Um, you know, they're enabling and creating long-term change in the world with things that are anchored in people's lives. And um, it's about avoiding being a hero or an activist as a brand and rather kind of just enabling change that everyone can can participate in, and 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 it is to that shared value point, like Cadbury's and Michelob Ultra are doing. They are they are quite obviously supporting their own business growth with these campaigns, but they're also creating long term change um, at the same time. Um, I think a, another school of thought around post purpose is is about advertising's purpose shifting to being more around kind of reducing the impact of advertising itself on the world. So in terms of the carbon footprint of advertising and the role that brands have to play in reducing that that footprint. Um, there's a great article on Walk um, at the moment from uh, Sir John Hegarty, who um, kind of talks about exactly that. And in it, he says, creativity is the greenest fuel available to our industry. So it's, it's on post-purpose being a about sustainability, which I, I think is a really interesting perspective. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, because the the you know sustainability and and uh, sort of push towards uh, diversity and inclusion as well. These feel like much bigger topics. I mean, they are much bigger topics than what a brand believes to be its purpose. So, getting involved in those sorts of areas is not a case of brand purpose. It's getting involved with a much broader um societal challenge i've seen another sort of use of this which i think this the sort of term post-purpose which i think is worth highlighting and maybe this segues into our next topic but this idea that as purpose either goes out of fashion or or becomes more of a sort of strategic idea rather than a tactical idea we're actually seeing brands return to some of what you might call the fundamentals of creative effectiveness and and one of those in particular is this idea that humor is making a comeback uh, after several years of us, us looking for emotion that is uh hooked into yeah hooked into purpose or doing good we're actually coming back to uh to some of the stuff that we we know has worked over many decades and one of those is 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 being entertaining being funny 
Yeah, that's de- that's definitely something we've been seeing more of this year. And I think it kind of kicked off at Cannes um, this year. We definitely noted an uptick in the use of humour in some of the winning campaigns. Um, in our creative effectiveness um, write-up from Cannes, um, which you can which you can download on Walk, we noted that a, num- a good number of, of the big winners were harnessing emotion, but particularly joy and lighthearted humour. Um, I think you and I talked about this on, on the podcast earlier in the year, but but I do think we've seen emotion generally, but particularly humour being talked about a lot more this year. And I think the judges at Cannes wanted a kind of break from that serious and sombre advertising that we've seen so much, particularly during COVID. So they were looking for that kind of levity in emotion from the entries. Yeah, and I've seen Kantar noted this in their testing data too, and they they did find a a slight return of humour in uh, in 2022, which has then been maintained into 2023. And I think that's interesting because you know when we've we've uh, looked at the decline of humour over over uh, the last 10, 20 years. Um, we've it's been Kantar's data we've used to sort of show that it has shown a sort of general decline over many years so the fact that that same data is now showing an uptick um is is really interesting and actually you know just anecdotally i know one of the sort of most popular best received sessions in Cannes uh came from andrew robertson from bbdo who uh used some of Cantar's link data to demonstrate that humor can deliver impact for brands if it's done well and it you know it was it was a sort of well, it was lighthearted talk, obviously, but but it also seemed to cut through, and people were really sort of interested and engaged with uh, with this idea of well, how how do we get more funny? Yeah, and I think that um, even though there was more kind of lightheartedness in the ads that are awarded this year, um, there's probably further that we can go with humour. That can, that Cantar link data that you were talking about um, shows that ads that marketers intend to be funny have above average distinctiveness and emotional connection and engagement, but they're not actually as strong as the ads that make consumers really laugh out loud. Now, this starts to push into something I'm really interested in, and, and that is... Uh types of emotion and intensity of emotion um when we're talking about what works um you know we we have this tendency as an industry to talk about uh the need to drive emotional impact because emotion is what makes people remember but it seems to be so much sort of scope to sort of try to unpack that a bit and understand uh both the types of emotion that are that that i work best in certain situations but also uh the degree of emotion you know what what depth of emotion do you need to be driving and and how do you do that you know through through the course of a a particular commercial message whether that's a minute long or three seconds long so i think there's a lot more to unpack in this area yeah exactly um actually on the podcast earlier this year i had a a conversation with ian forrester from um, a company called david which is a, a kind of research tech company that focuses on analyzing the use of emotion, but particularly that intensity of emotion in ads um, using um, AI. And and Ian was talking about um, uh, increasing the intensity of the the emotion that ads generate, particularly positive emotions to really encode them in memory. Um, So we can play a clip here from, from that conversation, which talks about those kind of intense positive emotions. Because once you've captured attention, you've got to do something with it. And that something is evoke an intense positive emotional response because it's the emotional response which creates a memory structure and it's the memory structure which drives the action which ultimately the brand wants so the problem with a lot of ads these days is that 
emotionally, they're just a little bit average. So you watch an ad and you think, oh yeah, that was okay. But it's like a four or a five out of 10. It's a positive response with a four or a five out of 10. The issue with that is two seconds later, you've forgotten that ad. And so it's not going to change your behavior. But if a brand can elevate that emotional response to an eight or a nine or a 10 out of 10, the viewer remembers the way the ad made them feel. They attach that feeling to the brand. And it's that feeling which causes that person to do something either immediately or at a later date. So that's another important point. This stuff is relevant both for direct response campaigns and for brand building campaigns. Okay, so let's get into our third and final talking point. Um, and, you know, we just mentioned some Kantar data. We've just heard from David. But I think it's fair to say there's been a lot of sort of new research studies out over the over the last year that are really sort of designed to hammer home this sort of link between creativity and effectiveness. And I think that's what we're just going to talk through some of the highlights of, of those findings, aren't we? I mean, that's that's uh, that's our sort of third talking point. There's 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 a lot of stuff out there, and uh, it's just about understanding the, the sort of headlines. Yeah, exactly. Um, we'll focus on four today, but um, if you're a Walk Creative sc- subscriber, look out for a deck that we're publishing in January that brings together the kind of top 10 proof points for for creative effectiveness um, or the the case for creativity, if you like. And it it brings together those key pieces of research um, that will help you kind of make that continued case for creativity. Because as you say, David, there's a lot out there at the moment. The the first one that I wanted to mention is actually a refresh of a study that first kicked off in, I think, 2006. Um, It was a study from um, Paul Dyson, who is an industry ROI expert. And he looked at the top um, 10 drivers of advertising profitability using a whole bunch of of ROI data globally. Um, And so he updated um, that study this year. And he found that creative quality um, has a 12 times multiplier effect on profitability. Um, And it's actually second only to brand size in terms of the levers that you can pull um, to drive profit. Yeah, it's a great it's a great piece of research, and Paul's done it three times now. And I think you know the, the first time it was back when Walk had a magazine called AdMap, and it appeared in the uh, appeared in there. Um, and obviously, we've published each of those iterations over the years, and the, the the finding is really consistent. And I think I think it's really worth sort of sort of hammering this home a little bit. Uh, what they did is they looked at the contribution of various different factors in terms of driving the profitable outcomes from advertising. And the number one driver is brand size uh, and and the sort of category size. So it, it, it's basically how much headroom you as an organization have to grow. And we, we know that that's, that's been proved many, over many times, many years, that your sort of size of the brand and the size of the category is absolutely key in terms of setting objectives, in terms of, uh, you know, sort of your sales and profit expectations. Number two is the creative work. And this is important in two ways. The first one is that that number two factor is, is time is 12x uh, multiplier. It's way, way, way ahead of any other factor. Um, and the second thing that's really important is that, well, if you're a marketer, you can't really control uh, the, the size of the category you're in or the, or the, the size of your brand. Um, so the, the strength of the creative work is the number one driver within your actual control. So I, I, it's a really important study that has just 
has now taken place three times and the finding is the same each time. Yeah, a really interesting one. And, and actually, there was another piece of research, um, kind of one of those fundamental studies that was updated again this year um, from Nielsen Catalina Solutions. And, and and they looked at a similar thing. So looking at um, the kind of percentage contribution of different advertising elements um, to profitability and um, found that um, 49% um, of sales are driven by the creative. Um, and then second was brand in, at 21%. And that was across 450 CPG campaigns across digital and TV. So that was updated. And again, similar to the, the previous study, really not much had changed in quite a, quite a gap. Um, it was first run in 2014, I think, and updated this year and, and, and not much had changed in that finding. So it's still finding that creative is, is, is this big kind of driver of sales or profitability. And we've got other bits of research that have come out this year as well and we've we at walk have been trying to prove this out in other databases as well haven't we yeah exactly so so we did some work with Kantar earlier this year looking at um average profit rois across our database of case studies and um, we compared these to Kantar's measure of creative quality um and we found that ads with high creative quality drove four times the average profit roi of those with low creative quality um, and we've got another couple of studies coming up next year with um different partners that will look at the impact of creative quality using some of our other data so some of our rankings data and our creative effectiveness ladder data. So look out for those um, in the new year as well. And one thing, one argument I'm, I'm starting to see more of, which is really interesting, is around how creative quality can boost media efficiencies. So there was a study from CreativeX, I'm not sure if it was this year, maybe it was the previous year, but they analysed something like a million digital ads within CPG, beauty, alcohol, and they found that a 10% increase in creative quality score resulted in drops in cost per thousand uh, and cost per click on social platforms. Um, and I think what's really interesting here, you mentioned the John Hegarty article earlier. You've got this sort of um, drive for efficiency for coming from two different ways. First, in terms of cost cutting, uh, just in terms of general, the, the, the pressure in the economic environment. And secondly... Uh, due to the need to reduce uh, the carbon footprint of um, uh, of advertising, the carbon footprint of a, of a sort of media budget. Um, so if you've got those two pressures and then we're saying, well, actually creativity helps you do more with less, then that's that's quite a, a strong argument. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think we will be seeing a lot more of that conversation um, in the next year. Um, I, I wanted to finish up with a piece of um, work we did with Appraise, who are a company that assess the strength of relationships between agencies and their clients. Um, and the reason I want to talk about this is slightly diverging from the kind of stats heavy, you know, ones that we've just been talking about, about kind of ROI and profit. But it, it does come back to um, creative and the quality of creative that's being that's being kind of generated at the end of the day. Um, the work that we did was comparing our um, rankings data with um, their data of of kind of the strength of relationships between agencies and their clients, and we found that there was a strong correlation between those with the strongest relationship scores as scored by by appraise and that and those that won effectiveness awards and and when you kind of dug into it in a bit more depth you found that um 
where they were scoring really highly was things like collaboration and the strength of the strategy. And what comes out of those things is is strong work. We've always found that throughout all of the work that we do looking at kind of the most creative and the most effective work. When we look into the case studies or we interview the agencies behind them, they always mention how great the relationship that they have between between the kind of clients and the agencies and how how they put that to a big a big that's a big factor in creating this really effective work. And what was interesting about this was, yeah, like the, the strength of the relationship between uh between the client and the agency was was clearly correlated with with more effective outcomes. But it was when we dug under the surface and actually found what the the drivers were, and it it really spoke to agencies becoming sort of strategic partners, didn't it? Because the, yeah. the key elements of a relationship that made the difference, or that that seemed to be more correlated with uh, with these effective outcomes, were uh, strategy and 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 a behaviour called challenge. Just just talk us through those uh, a little bit. Yeah, so the, the, there were three things actually. There was um, challenge, there was strategy, and there was also trust. I mean, trust is pretty self-explanatory. Um, the challenge aspect was uh, was where um, they kind of use initiative to challenge the status quo and, and and don't allow kind of conflict to go unaddressed. So it's about kind of a behaviour that shows you know that they're collaborating, but they but they will work through things and um, and then strategy um, is kind of one of the job specific skills that they looked at when they dug a deeper into the data um, and strategy was the the discipline for which kind of winning teams um, showed the biggest increase in score compared to the average relationship so those that had kind of really really strong strategy on both sides of the equation so it was in strategy within the clients and strategy um, within the agency teams as well um, and we can hear a little bit more about that um, from um, a clip that we've got from a podcast I did with with Kim Walker who heads up appraise now we were able to define seven core behaviours. And let me articulate them. Firstly, challenge, then goals, accountability, trust, communication, resilience, and functional skills, or getting a job done. Now, when we look at client scores of agency on those seven behaviours, we see three key factors. Firstly, award winners have higher scores across all behaviours, Trust is remarkably important. It, in fact, the highest scoring behaviour for both clients and agencies. Um, and finally, challenge is the area that has the greatest difference. It had a 5.7 point gap um, between the appraised average and the winning agencies. And when we look at the reverse, we look at the agency score of clients of the, on those same seven behaviours, the results are remarkably similar. Award winners, again, have higher scores across all the behaviours. Great. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Walk podcast. So thank you, Amy, for bringing those talking points. And obviously, a lot of that stuff is available on Walk, particularly if you're a Walk creative subscriber and look out for that deck of the latest proofs of creative effectiveness uh, coming out in the new year. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please do subscribe to the Walk Podcast on your favourite podcasting platform. And if you really like what you've heard, then leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.